Well, we can um, think about the passage we read there from Luke chapter 22, uh, Jesus in Gethsemane. It is the case, of course, as we know, that people see life through different perspectives and different viewpoints and so on. And the period in the Garden of Gethsemane is uh, mentioned by each of the Gospel writers, but they don't all highlight the same things. If we only had uh, John's Gospel to go by, uh, we wouldn't know that Jesus was in any trouble at all in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we read what Luke says, we wouldn't even know it was in the garden because he doesn't mention the Garden of Gethsemane. He just says it's the Mount of Olives. And also Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus prayed three times, nor does he tell us that Jesus separated three disciples from the rest. It's not because he was unaware of that but it's just that he was guided by the Holy Spirit uh, to focus on other things but sometimes it's useful for us just to uh, notice the differences Luke records some things that um, the others don't if I remember correctly Luke is the one that mentions that his sweat was as great drops of blood and that might point to a doctor's interest. And after all, Luke was a physician. So it's, um, it's all these kind of uh, details that are uh, just, they're just there. What are we listening into here? Well, I suppose it's like... Um, one side of a conversation. Sometimes we're in a room and the telephone rings and somebody in the room goes and answers it and we're just sitting there and all we hear is one side of the conversation. Well, here in the Garden of Gethsemane we hear one side of the conversation because Jesus is speaking to someone and he's speaking to his father and we don't know what the Father is saying back to him. But we, so we're sitting there and listening in to one side of the conversation. Of course, it all depends what the conversation is, doesn't it? I mean, some conversations are very important, and even for us to hear one side of them is, uh, is uh, just... Uh, it interests us and intrigues us and when the phone calls over we'll ask the person well, what was it about and here we should be very interested in what um, Jesus was getting involved in because we can put it this way the state he was in in the garden he was ever only in it once it's a totally unique event, even for him. The emotional distress, the perplexity of his soul, the confusion that he went through. I mean, Gethsemane wasn't um, obviously as painful as the cross. But when it comes to the the sense of desperation and the, the awareness of the horror that was ahead of him. It could be the case, as some people suggest, that even Gethsemane was darker than the cross. Who knows? Who is capable of estimating that? 
But anyway, that's what some people suggest. Gethsemane, there's a hymn that tells us to go to dark Gethsemane. Kind of raises the question, doesn't it? Is Gethsemane dark? It was certainly dark for Jesus. But is it dark for us? How do we see Gethsemane? It certainly is dark as far as the time of day is concerned. But it could be a place where a lot of light is shown. And if that's the case, it's just God's way, isn't it? That the darkest times can also turn into the times of a great brightness. So we'll just uh, look at this um, um, incident and see what we can learn from it. I've got, one, I've got six headings. Intention, instruction, isolation, input, intensity, instruction, and then one or two lessons. Intention. Well, the intention is that Jesus went there on purpose. As we're told there in verse 39, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Um, I wonder where the disciples thought they were going when they left the upper room. I mean, remember what they were talking about. They were talking about which of them was going to be the greatest. And their leader, he was shortly about to become the king and acknowledged by all. And I wonder where they thought they were going when they left the upper room. They certainly didn't think they were going to see what they saw. Although it's not clear how much of it they actually did see because they spent most of the time asleep. Anyway, I think it is an interesting question. Where did they think they were going? For the Jesus has now been in Jerusalem for over a week since he came down to um, from Jericho, where he had healed Bartimaeus of his blindness and had brought Zacchaeus into the kingdom, and then he had gone up to Bethany, and he. And Mary had anointed him there with the oil for his burial. And apparently the, the expensive ointment or expensive oil, uh, the aroma could hang around for days. So it may be the case that the smell of that fragrance was still on him. Who can say? But anyway, he had been an anointed by her in the, in the previous um, Sabbath. And then on Palm Sunday, the next day, he had ridden into Jerusalem and he was acclaimed by the crowd as the king has arrived. And no doubt the disciples were very optimistic about these things. But every night of that week, he had gone back to Bethany he had um, stayed there with his friends, um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But on this particular night, he didn't on the, on the Thursday evening. And one reason for that probably was that anyone who had kept the Passover had to stay in Jerusalem. And uh, the Mount of Olives uh, was... Uh, was within the city boundaries, but Bethany wasn't. So Jesus uh, acknowledged the authority of the people who had said you'd have to live within the boundaries of the city. 
even if it meant um, having to spend uh, the night in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he went there. We told it was his custom to do that. John tells us that he had done it often. Don't know if that means it was his custom at Passover time to do it on the day of the Passover, or was it his custom whenever he was in Jerusalem to do it? But either way, he went up to this, this garden at the foot of Gethsemane. You can still go to the garden. I mean, if you go on a tour of Israel, they'll take you to the garden of Gethsemane. And they'll also tell you that some of the the olive trees in the garden, that they were there when Jesus was there. They're not active anymore, but you can actually go and see the, the place where this incident took, occurred. There's something else about Jesus' intention of going there, of course, and that is that Judas knew he would be there. As we thought about previously, when it came to the actually celebration of the Passover, which turned into the Lord's Supper, Jesus went um, told the disciples, Peter and John, where it was going to be in a very cryptic manner. He had told them to go into Jerusalem and they'd find a man uh, carrying a pitcher of water, and if they followed him, to a certain house, that would be the place where they would uh, celebrate the Passover. And the, the reason he did that was to prevent Judas arresting him at that particular time. Didn't tell them the address of where the Lord's Supper was going to be. But Jesus knew that Judas would be fully aware that he would spend the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it would have been very easy for, for Jesus not to have gone there. If he wanted to avoid being arrested by Judas, because he had already told Judas to go and do what he had planned and to do it quickly. So if Jesus wanted to avoid being arrested by Judas and the, and the <clears throat> band of soldiers that he had procured, all he had to do was go somewhere else. But he didn't do that. He um, was determined to face what was coming. So here we have uh, Jesus, and he's got no intention of running away. Um, his, he knows the plan that has been marked out for him. That within the next few hours he's going to be uh, crucified. So this uh, little statement there in verse 39, as was his custom, it tells us a great deal about him. As he was um, he wanted to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where you'd be arrested. He also, I suppose, wanted to go to the Garden of Gethsemane for fellowship with his disciples. With whom would he spend the last few hours with before he was arrested? I mean, this um, incident in the garden is the last time he's going to see them before he dies. And he wanted them and to be there. We are told when he selected the apostles earlier on, a reason number one why he chose them was so that they would be with him. And it doesn't mean that they would be with him in the pleasant times, although that's obviously included, but they'd be with him in all the situations that he would be in. And he had prepared them for this. For all the situations that they'd be in, he had prepared them for it. And he wanted uh, these uh, disciples 
to be with him when he got arrested. And he wanted them to be with him as he himself prepared for that arrest. Because that must be one of the reasons why he went there. He knew there was a real ordeal ahead of him. And what better way to prepare for the ordeal than to have fellowship and to have his own um, thoughts on the issue, because he is thinking about it, have his own thoughts on the issue that he is about to undergo. And although Luke doesn't mention it, he had arranged for Peter and James and John to be closer to him. But the reality is, isn't it, that he might as well have left him in the upper room. He wanted them to be there, but they didn't show much interest in being there, did they? On this night of nights, (coughs) they decided it would be a good time to fall asleep. That was their choice. Anyway, he wanted them to be there. That was his intention. And of course it tells us that the Savior understands when people let somebody down. And he understands it far deeper than anyone else, doesn't he? When he needed them, they weren't there. They were there physically. But they didn't do what he wanted them to do. Watch with me one hour. That's the intention. But then in verse 40 we have an instruction. A very uh, solemn instruction, isn't it? There in verse 40 he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Indeed, uh, this line, pray you may not enter into temptation, is the brackets of this incident. Because Jesus mentions that in verse 40, and then he mentions it again at the end of verse 46. He mentions it at the start of the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he mentions it at the end of their time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. <clears throat> I mean, he had already told, and as we saw last week, he had already instructed Peter about the danger of, um, of what the disciples were about to face. He's, when he said to them, uh, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And Jesus here knows that the sifting is about to start. And how is, what are they to do as they go into the garden? Well, they're to pray. And his warning is quite stark. He doesn't merely say, pray, you will not be tempted. I mean, that could be... Um, an everyday statement. Pray you will not be tempted. But here he warns them there's something far deeper going on. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. I mean, it's a very graphic word picture, isn't it? Enter into temptation. It means you're going to be submerged in it. I mean, if we go into water... That's what happens, isn't it? And we sang about that in Psalm 42, I think, where it talked about God's billows going over our heads. Well, that's where they're going to be shortly. And the Savior knows that. And he warns them. How do they pray for this trial that's coming their way? How do they prepare for this trial that's coming their way? Pray. And there's 
There's 11 of them there, and they can all egg one another on to pray, can't they? They could say to one another as they saw Jesus in the garden, he told us to pray, so maybe we should pray. But that didn't, thought didn't enter their head, did it? These disciples had been tempted many times. But I don't think they had ever yet entered into temptation. They had to, um, they were going to experience a trial where the sifting was going to be prolonged. In reality, it was going to last for until Jesus was raised from the dead. But as we can see, sadly, they ignored his instruction completely. It's interesting, isn't it, that after he had washed their feet and he he had said to them, by then, your master and Lord have done these things. Happy are you if you do them. So if you do, so he's saying to them, if you do what I do, it'll be good for you. So there he is in the garden. He's in the garden. And he's going to pray. And he's saying, isn't he? to them in the garden if you do what I'm doing it will be good for you the implication being if you don't do it it's going to be worse for you so that's the instruction they go into the garden to watch the most holy man that ever lived in fact the only holy man that ever lived And they're going to see him in a state of complete disorientation. What should they do? They can't help him. They can't go up and pat him on the back and say it will soon be over. They're to show sympathy Empathy. But they can't even do that. So they didn't listen to what he had to say. And of course we don't throw stones at them. That would be a terrible thing to do. But we are to take warning from them. What they went through. And of course the lesson is, isn't it? Pray. And that leads us to the third thing, isolation. In verse 41, it says, Jesus withdrew from them. And the, the word that's translated withdrew, some people say it's got a certain element of reluctance in its meaning. It's almost as if Jesus was, he didn't want to leave them, as it were, by themselves. But he also knew from what his, his own, where his own thoughts were, that he didn't want to be distracted. He would have loved, as it were, to stay with them. But he didn't want to be distracted from the matters that he had to wrestle with in his own heart and mind. But although Luke doesn't mention it, the other gospel writers highlight he kept going back to see them. And the reason why, I assume why he kept going back to see them is he didn't want to be away from them. Sometimes we can present his returns in the Garden of Gethsemane as if he's checking up on them. That's not the heart of Jesus. He's not there to check up on people. 
He wants to be with them. He's got this burden on his heart that makes it, means he can't. He's got to go somewhere where they can't go. They might be in danger of entering into temptation or into trial, but he's going somewhere far deeper. But still, he wants to be with them. And we're told that he knelt down, went away about a stone's throw. That's a very cryptic sort of reference, isn't it? How far away is a stone's throw? I suppose it depends on who's throwing it. But anyway, he moves away a distance from them, and he knelt down. I don't know if this is the only time that we're told that Jesus knelt. There may be others, but I just can't think of them at the moment. But normally when we're told about him praying, he's standing. And that happens many times that when he's standing, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays. But here he kneels. And I don't know what ideas come into our mind by the reference to kneeling. It could be submission, reverence. But it could also be lack of strength, couldn't it? Finds it hard to stand. I mean, Jesus would have been reverent whatever his posture was. So he doesn't need to kneel to show he's reverent. He may have knelt because he was indicating his willingness to proceed, his submission. But even if he had knelt for that reason, when we put the four accounts together, we realize that he wasn't static in his positions. He's rolling about on the ground. But as his prayer is repeated, you know, where it says there, knelt down and prayed, the word prayed is in the imperfect tense, which means he kept on praying. He just, he just didn't, as it were, say a one-liner and then get up. But he kept praying and repeating and saying to his father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, he's got the cup already. I mean, he's had the cup, I suppose we could say, all his life. But here he is, and he's coming to the cross, and, and he... It's starting to really dawn on him what this is going to involve. But he's got a human mind. So he prays. And from one level, it's a very um, basic prayer. It's almost a prayer a child could make. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this prayer, we see his awareness of who he is. He's the son of God. He's aware of who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his heavenly father. We can see in the prayer that he is submissive, not my will, but yours be done. And we can see he's very specific. Just imagine it. He's, here's the eternal son coming to the eternal father. And he's only got one request. That one request is, and it's an imperative, 
So that entails there's a lot of energy in it. Remove this cup from me. It's almost as if he's saying to the Heavenly Father, stretch out your almighty hand and take this cup from me immediately. But this one petition is not answered. At least it's not answered in the sense of it being removed from him. Some people wonder, well, surely he must have known it wouldn't be taken from him. And because he's God as well as man. And from a theological point of view, that's true. Don't know if you ever read the book, The Shadow of Calvary, by Hugh Martin. And in it, he kind of plumbs the depths of what took place here. He points out that Gethsemane had witnessed Jesus many times in prayer and supplication, though never so emptied and abased as now. And there he is, the possessor of all divine attributes, omnipotence, omniscience. And Martin says about them, that Jesus consciously withdrew them all from action that he might taste the weakness of created nature. If Jesus was just there, a divine person, strong with all his attributes and action. How would he have tasted the weakness of created nature? But he's tasting it. This petition is not a pretense. It's not as if he's ticking off one by one the boxes of all the things he's got to say. Here he is in deep distress. And he prays that this cup, what cup? The cup of wrath. I suppose if we're making a concoction or something, it all depends on what we're able to put into it. If the Heavenly Father is making the concoction, and it's his wrath that's going into it. Well, who can describe what that is? But there he is. <clears throat> I mean, five seconds of the Father's wrath would be intolerable. One second would be too much. But he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to drink it. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? He's willing to drink it. He's isolated. The silence to his petition is very loud. But heaven, heaven is merciful. And we see the input there in verse 43. Strange input. Down comes an angel. Don't know if the disciples saw this. They might have been asleep. But anyway, down he comes. And he strengthens them. 
there appeared to him an angel from heaven and strengthening him. And in the original language, the word at the beginning of the sentence was there for emphasis as the word appeared from nowhere. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And of course, the word strengthening kind of suggests it took a bit of time. Didn't pass on to him any physical energy. He didn't need that. Maybe he did what we thought about earlier in Psalm 102. Maybe the angel did quote to him, him Psalm 102. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe he just bowed down to him. I mean, that would be a powerful reminder straight from heaven of this creature, an angel, an angel who's never sinned, who's come from the center of glory where he bows and comes down to heaven, so down to the garden and bows there a little bit of heaven to the darkest place of earth. Or maybe he had a secret message, a secret message from the Heavenly Father. That would be just like the Father, wouldn't it? But we're not told what he actually said. Instead, we're just told he strengthened him. And that's quite extraordinary. I mean, here's the creator of the angel. Because Jesus created them all at the beginning. And this angel, whatever purpose it had throughout its entire existence, and it may not have known about this mission until it was sent a few seconds before he went. But he was made for this to come down to the Garden of Gethsemane and see Jesus there. Martin says, how unspeakably seasonable and consoling that such a crisis by the adoring worship of an angel, the glory of his own divine person, should be presented to the view of his created mind. He could have escaped into his own divine attributes. But instead, this is, this is his humiliation. He needs an angel to come to help him. When we think about this angel, we're not surprised at Rabbi Duncan's desire, are we? Who do you want to meet in heaven? Well, what he replied was, he wanted to meet the angel that strengthened his savior in the garden. Well, imagine what would have happened if he hadn't. And that leads to intensity. What happened after the angel came? Well, he's still in an agony. The coming of the angel didn't remove the agony. And we've thought about something similar to that this morning when Nehemiah prayed for the first time. And his first prayer didn't make the situation better from, a, from his own perspective. It seemed to get worse. And here's Jesus. And he's had this astonishing 
input from heaven. But he doesn't, as it were, in verse 44, the burden is still there. And it's very graphic the way it's described. He's in an agony. At the moment, we're in the atmosphere. All around us is the air we breathe. We're in the atmosphere. Jesus is in the agony. It affects every part of him. And as he's in his agony, he prays, and it's repeatedly, it's another imperfect tense, he prays more earnestly. He's engaged in a battle. He's not resting for his life. He's resting for ours. And he prays more earnestly. He's got to take the cup. The cup of full of the wrath that's due to us. And the agony is so intense. As I mentioned earlier, Dr. Luke points out his sweat. You know, we sweat when, our, when we're energetic. There's never been a man so energetic as this. And the sweat is such, it's like great drops of blood. Apparently this can happen. I've never seen it myself, but apparently this can happen. And there he is, distressed beyond words. And then all of a sudden, it's over. He's ready to go to the cross. He's come through the battle. He's ready to face what's coming. And he returns to his disciples and looks at them, verse 45, and finds them sleeping for sorrow. says to them, what a word to say to them. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If they had seen him wrestling, it would have helped them the next few hours. What lessons can we take from all this? Well, there's a line of a hymn that we know very well, I'm sure. Gethsemane, can I forget, and there thy conflicts see, thine agony and blood like sweat, and not remember thee. A really challenging question. If we believe in Jesus, how can we not remember him? I mean, Montgomery, when he wrote that hymn, he was referring to the Lord's Supper, of course, but I just like to use the word remember in every situation. Gethsemane, can I forget? And there thy conflicts see, thine agony and blood like sweat, and not remember thee on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Here we see the real humanity of Jesus, don't we? Who's the biggest man who ever lived? It's Jesus. Where did he show his bigness? Well, in everything he did. But some places he showed it in a way he didn't show it anywhere else. 
He showed it when he could sleep through the storm. He also showed it when he prayed before the storm. A real man. Real men pray. And when the going gets tough, the more they pray. The spiritual life is no place for a stiff upper lip. The spiritual life involves prayer. Real prayer. And Jesus prayed. And even after getting the help from heaven, he prayed more earnestly. Maybe the angel just said to him, pray more. Who knows? Anyway, the real humanity of Jesus was shown. Also, we can see in this the awfulness of the cup of wrath. What do you and I deserve? I'll just take a look into the cup. The cup of wrath. Lost eternity. Just try and think about it for a couple of minutes. A lost eternity. What's that like? It's like being lost. Lost forever. Punished forever. It's real. Just look in Gethsemane. What Jesus thought of it. An awful thing, the cup of wrath. But at the same time, there's the willingness of Jesus to go. Extraordinary, isn't it? Every other man that ever lived would have pulled out. But he didn't. He kept on going. There's also a rather other lesson. The possibility of missing the important. Imagine meeting these disciples and saying to them, asking them, tell us something that happened in Gethsemane. What would they be able to tell us? They slept. There's a possibility, isn't there, of missing the important. Should always aim for the most important at any given time. And as we read this story, we should read it as participators, not as spectators. It's easy to read it as a spectator and assess this or that or the next thing about it. We have to read it as participators. Because we actually were there. It was our cup he was drinking. Our sin caused this night of agony. Andrew Boner once preached a sermon, a sermon on angels, a very well-known sermon, in which he imagined a discussion amongst the angels of all the different visits they had paid to earth and what they would want to say to him 
as he called himself in the sermon, an angel of the church, based on Revelation 2 and 3, to the angel of the churches. And he imagined what these angels would say to him to pass on to his people. And he said about this particular angel, saying to Boner, say to your communicants, if you had been there, if they had seen one of the great drops of blood that fell on the cold ground, or one tear in that holy countenance, so marred and worn more than any man's, or heard one groan as he cried, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, they would surely come to the communion table with awful reverence and wonder, their tears dropped into the cup of blessing and the broken bread wet with the weeping of grateful love. Gethsemane, what a place. Just got one more thing to say. Reading this, something Don McLeod said about Gethsemane. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people was not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but for that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation Lovingly. Shall we pray? Lord.